This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a volunteer-based community access station. For more information, go to www.radiokidnappers.org.nz. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this program available through funding the Access Internet Radio Project. You're listening to Radio Kidnappers, the voice of Hawke's Bay. This is a program called Real Wealth, and it's our pleasure, as always, to have in the studio Nick Stewart from the Stewart Group in Hastings. How are you going, Nick? Very good, thank you. Great star, to be of, here. star of stage and screen. Oh, yeah, Say right. good day to all your fans on YouTube. Hi, oh, right. Now, just before we get into today's topic, which is going to come to us all one day or another, retirement. Indeed. And what we do with our money and our assets. Just remind our listeners, Nick, what does the Stewart Group do? Uh, Stewart Group is a Hawke's Bay owned and operated financial services company. We specialise in financial planning, wealth management and insurance. Been here for 32 years. 32 years going strong. That's a long haul, isn't it? It is, yes. And when yeah. we, want, we want to come and talk to you, where are you? Uh, we're at 204 Academy Road, the large black basalt stone building with a tartan logo. Can't be missed. It cannot be. And what's your phone number there? Eight seven eight eight nine six one. Now we want to talk about retirement. Yeah. What are we going to do, and when, as for instance, children, should we be having the conversation with our parents? When should we be sitting down for this conversation, Nick? Personally, I think the uh, the sooner the better, yeah. and at the earliest opportunity, so that these. So that these, you know, they can be difficult discussions. Mm-hmm. So that you can, it can be out out on the table. It can be part of the, uh, you know, dinner discussion. So that there's um, the elephant's not grazing in the corner of the room. And it's not necessarily a discussion that we should leave until, say, the likes of me. I mean, I'm nearly 65. Could retire next year. I should be having this five years ago. Yes. Yes. Sooner, the, like you said, sooner the better. When you say sooner, what would be the ideal age from your point of view? Well. If you think about the, for example, some of the, um, a lot of people have trusts, um, you know, a lot of people have a, um, you know, memorandum of wishes, a, a will, etc. It's very, very good that those are spoken about uh, early in the piece. For example, a lot of um, parents have one of one or more of their children as a trustee or as a reserve trustee, or they um, they hold enduring power of attorney. Uh, either over property, being you know assets, or over over health and well being. Yeah. Now a lot of us don't like to think about retiring. I know I don't like to think about it because I I can see myself working, particularly in this job, until I'm at least seventy. I mean, what a great job talking to people like you. But couldn't be any better, <laughs> could it? But. It's not cheap to retire, is it? No, it's not. And there's a lot of market evidence coming out. I read oh, there'd be an article even in our, um, you know, in our local tabloids, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the um, what appears to be an ever-shrinking uh, newspaper. But um, yes, right. <laughs> but there are there's there's evidence that it is that people are finding that retiring at 65 and pulling up stumps, and then living through to their early to mid 90s. Uh, is a daunting uh, prospect, particularly when you think about it through a financial lens. And if you want to live on a superannuation that the government are going to pay you, you've done, it's going to be pretty tight, isn't it? That would be very tight. And when you consider that uh, superannuation is universal, um, so, for example, if you're retiring in um, Invercargill versus retiring in central Auckland, um, you know, Phil Goff's going to take a fair portion of your superannuation in the form of rates. Dead right. Now, I might suggest to you, Nick, that most people, uh, as they're growing up, buying houses, buying cars, raising families, 
there's not not actually much left over for saving for the retirement, and we probably don't even want to think mm-hmm. about it. But mm-hmm. how much should we be saving? Um, well, the rule of the rule of thumb has always been a figure around ten percent. Mm-hmm. Um, now, look, you know, in this day and age, we have some amazing tools to allow us to do financial planning. Yep. A lot of this stuff can, or a lot of these tools are available online for people to utilise. I mean, our government and the Retirement Commission has done a great job in providing tools. Uh, that's through the sorted website. Um, so, you know, people can factor in, you know, what they would like to live on, what they're earning, how much they need to put away and such like. But we generally find that a lot of people think about saving um, right at the bottom of the list. And when you actually filter through, you take your income from one or two or three sources and you then filter it down to the bottom. Most people, it's an afterthought. Sure. Sounds great what you just said, and if I was reading that on the computer, it would sound great as well, but when we divorce ourselves from the black and white of all that, it's not that simple, is it? No, it's not, and that's why we always advocate that people should uh, have effectively a financial coach, being a Mm. financial planner, someone that sits down with the clients, lays it out black and white, warts and all, what the position is, how they can uh, expand their uh, income, uh, how they can reduce their expenses, and how they're best to uh, tailor their savings, because small incremental changes can have a phenomenal impact when, for example, if you know, if you, you're sitting here today, almost 65, you know, if when you're doing your planning, if you factor in, you know, kicking out the retirement, that extra couple of years can make all the difference. Too right. Should saving be factored into your um, budget, just like your mortgages, that's non-negotiable, that money comes out regardless of whether you want to buy a bottle of whiskey or whatever yeah. you want to buy. <laughs> now, um, yeah, well, you know, uh, absolutely. Um, the best factor is you always pay yourself before you pay anyone else. Yep. Now, a lot of people do that in the form of a mortgage because it's one of those responsibilities that, for the most part, you know, 99.9% of the community um, respect that obligation that they have with that debt. Um, you know, my feeling is that people should be uh, treating their savings exactly the same way. So if you pay yourself before you pay anyone else, put away the savings – um, it's amazing what can happen, and you need to start the discipline because the discipline that's created pre-retirement will carry you through post-retirement. Now, when you say put that money away, again, it sounds so simple, but put that money where? So if we're saving, I don't know, say beyond $50,000 a year, and every year you're putting $5,000 in the bank, are we putting it in the bank? Is that the best place for it? Or where, as a financial advisor, are you suggesting that I come to you and talk to you about it? Where are you going to suggest that I put that money? Well, the um the the historical rule of thumb is that someone as as somebody approached retirement they wound back their mm. equity or percentage to shares which are growth assets that they would wind those back and seek a more conservative position whereas now modern thinking is pushing it more towards that the person should have a balanced approach now you know the word balance is an mm-hmm. industry term, but what it means is you're going to have a balance between shares or you know equities and bonds and property. Now the reason why that's the case is that if you're going to be living ninety, ninety-five through to a hundred, you know that's decades and decades mm-hmm. that the assets are going to be invested in the market. That's a very different uh, analogy. To when um, you know the you know people were pitching towards more conservative portfolios because you know when New Zealand superannuation was introduced, the retirement age was higher than the average life expectancy. 
So in other words, you know, it was like a gold medal, like getting a letter from the Queen that you've reached a hundred. <laughs> right. But it's different today. We live longer. You know, Kiwis, yeah. we are aging 1.2 years every decade. We're living longer by 1.2 years every decade. That's phenomenal. It is amazing. And I'm probably luckier than you that I'm probably going to sneak into that, uh, getting my superannuation at 65. However, a young fellow like you, it might be 67, might be 70, might be 75. Yes, it might be, uh, if any, because by yes. then the, you know, like, you know, um, anyone who's involved in those kind of, um, you know, the, uh, the planning uh, at a government level, um, knows that there is a, um, a fairly large unfunded, uh, obligation there on behalf of the state mm. and it pushes the responsibility on to the collective fund and the taxes collected off those that are working. So the more people you have, uh, receiving those um, like uh, transfer credits from government in the form of superannuation, the more people that are receiving those, you need you need a fairly large workforce. Do you come across many people in your daily life, Nick, that don't save? I yes. mean, you know what they what they're relying on. I suppose in the main is that hey, look, I've got a freehold house. When I finally retire, what I'm going to do is sell my house. I'm going to buy another cool house somewhere and live off the balance. Is, is that a, a wise way to look at what we, how we're going to retire or not? For some people it can be, but it assumes one big factor, one, or two big factors. The first being that they can easily realise a satisfactory price for their current house. Mm-hmm. And the second is that they will be able to exit that market and enter a market that is cheaper than the one that they are leaving. Mm. Now, when I say cheaper, that doesn't mean you um, sell a house in, um, oh, let's say, um, central Auckland, where the bulk of the population live, and to to move three doors down the road to a cheaper house. For the most part, a lot of people are finding that it just doesn't work. That's right. The quantum of capital that they needed to realise and extract out of that home, being the difference between what they buy at and what they sold at, the quantum of capital is just not there. And in fact, in real terms, even living in Hawke's Bay here, if you buy and sell a house, you've really got to, no disrespect to what I'm going to say now, but you've really got to move down to Otani to, or White Power or White around <laughs> to free up a substantial amount of money so that you can have those things that you want in your life. But now all of a sudden... You're out in the sticks. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, well, quite a few people have done that, and you know, a number of people have left uh, areas such as Tauranga and Auckland, and have moved to locations such as uh, Hastings, Napier, um, Wanganui, etc. Yeah. What do you suggest to people though who have been wise? They've got these investments all over the place, and you get to a certain age where, for instance, we've spoken about it before, that you don't need half a million dollars worth of life insurance. I mean, should we come and talk to you and say, look? Look, Nick, do we really need all this and what should we be doing as we're getting older? Do you give different information to an older investor than what you might give to a young guy like yourself? Um, yeah, very much so, particularly when it comes to insurance because insurance is there to offset, offset risk, mm-hmm. uh, offset liability. Um, for the most, which of course is unfunded. Uh, hence you offlay the risk to an insurer. Um, so, you know, if someone's coming up to age 65, uh, and they don't have any debt on the table and they do have a quantum of capital outside the home, that's their you know, investment portfolio, then the requirement for risk would be much reduced mm-hmm. versus someone like myself that, um, you know, I've got uh, children, wife, um, you know, a bit, you know, businesses that, um, that I have obligations to, so therefore I need to carry some insurance. 
I've been reading a few stories lately, Nick, where um, the younger generation, like my kids' age, for instance, mm. they're saying, geez, mum and dad, you're living in that big house. You know, you've, you've now got three spare bedrooms. There's just the two of you there. We're struggling a bit. <laughs> and where's our money? Um, yeah, there is a little bit of that. It's um, commonly termed the bank of mum and dad. <laughs> That's right. Now, the thing with the bank of mum and dad is that, uh, you know, you and I, we, well, um, the, um, the um, older um, homeowner, they can't unit total their house and sell off two of the three or four mm. bedrooms. So what happens, it forces them into a position where the bank of mum and dad draw down on their um, non-property assets, typically being their investment portfolio, mm. to pass some uh, cash off to the children. Or uh, some of them I've seen have um, drawn down on a debt facility secured over their family home uh, and um, and that capital is then passed on to the children. The issue with this is that um, a significant uh, portion of those haven't actually looked at what's required for themselves long term. And we've seen a couple of times where um, folk have gone out and given a generous, um, you know, deposit to um, a child or many mm-hmm. children because once you do it for one, it's difficult not to do it for exactly the others. Right. So what happens is, you know, if you've got um, three children and you give the first one uh, $100,000 to get them onto the property ladder, you've actually in many ways got a an obligation to help out the others. Mm-hmm. And then you find 300000 uh, you know, when we're doing our probability modelling for yeah. the parents, we actually find they're going to run short of capital. Yes, indeed. So we'd be better off to say, do what I did. Absolutely. Well, look, um, you know, a lot of people today, they want a home with a spare bedroom so that friends can stay. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants their own bathroom. Um, you know, they're wanting a couple of different entertainment areas, everything plugged up to, um, plugged up to sky, and they still want to be able to, uh, enjoy the lifestyle that they had when they were, uh, double income, no kids. And, right. and, and it's very, very difficult unless you're in the real upper echelon of, um, earners, or you live unbelievably frugally, it's very difficult not to change your lifestyle once you've bought a house. That's a great point that you raise that, um, probably most people fit into it the big pot of they're getting by, Hmm. they might be able to save a little bit. But what's your suggestion to someone who, because of circumstances, hasn't been able to save a lot, possibly doesn't quite own their house yet, but will come to own it? Hmm. What's the best way for them to approach retiring? I mean, I I, I guess you might say pay off that house as soon as possible. Um, Yes and no. Um, I would firstly say that for someone who, for someone that has no... Uh, no cash outside their home, if they were to channel all of their financial resources into repaying the debt, when they get to retirement, they all they have is their home mm. and superannuation. Whereas I've seen uh, globally there's some great evidence where people haven't done that and they've left some debt on the house and and you know the cost of the cost of debt these days is very cheap uh, globally unless you live in the um develop uh, in the emerging markets where the costs of funds are a little bit higher than they are mm. in our lovely country um and many OECD OECD countries for that matter all the developed world but we're finding a lot of people are leaving the debt there and building up a liquid um, investment portfolio because it's that portfolio that they're going to draw down to live on whereas if they focus solely on repaying the debt on the home it's only going to be a matter of time until they're going to have to sell that home because no. they're going to have nothing outside the home and you're going to have rates, um, repairs and maintenance, 
uh, insurance, etc. And and the other aspect is that if you have a house and you spend nothing on it to keep it up to spec, because you know every decade, um, you know the the uh, the um, state of the kitchen, um, the carpets, etc., the paint is going to decline, and we do see. Um, you know, you do see a number of people who hang on in there in their old family home for a period, and then they find when they come to sell it that they, you know, to get it up to spec on to get the price that they wanted to realise, they have to spend a fairly significant amount of capital to realise yeah, that price. Probably a hundred thousand dollars. Well, uh, if you've got a weatherboard five-bedroom yeah. home, and if if you are unfortunate to have one with a couple of stories on it, so you had to have scaffolding, yeah, it would be all of Not that. Either way. Which yeah. is a great segue into the next point, mm. um, particularly overseas. I yes. know London is a good example. Probably Auckland <laughs> is getting it that way. That there's a school of thought now. Why would you want to own your own home? Why wouldn't you just go out and rent forever? I mean, what's the downside of doing that? <clears throat> the it's a really good comment. And uh, a large portion of um, some of those inner city populations will never, of those really large mm-hmm. cities, will never own a home. Now, the positive aspect of that uh, is that in those countries they have much more uh, generous terms and terms in terms of tenancy. Mm-hmm. So you get people that take very long term leases, you know, tenancy arrangements with their with the landlord. That's something we don't see here very often. Um, it's, it's just the way that our the way that our tenancy market uh, has worked. But overseas, if you think about, it, if you were in central London, and you could rent someone's one million pound apartment for yeah, the equivalent of a two or three percent return to the landlord, that's actually pretty darn good. It's fantastic. Now that similar scenario is happening in in areas such as Auckland, where the return that the landlord is able to achieve in an open market transaction with a tenant, it's not a 7% return. It's more like 3 mm. So in other words, if you could utilise that Auckland house that had a valuation of a million dollars and you could effectively use it for a 3% return, well, your balance portfolio, that could be a million dollars. So in other words, you mm. know, you've got a person with a million dollars in a portfolio with no house. If they took the million dollars and bought the house, okay, so with no capital gain, they lock in a 3% return because that's the cash flow offset. On the on the other side, the person that's tenanting it doesn't have to look after the repairs yeah. and maintenance. It's not their obligation. And they get to utilize that lovely home, but they've got an investment portfolio, say a balanced portfolio, generating a 75 to 8.5% return. Mm. So you can start to see the arbitrage, and that's where some of the foreigners foreign tenants have done that very well because whilst it's fine to own your own dwelling i mean uh, if you have nothing outside that dwelling then um you're going to for a lot of people are going to have a quite a frugal existence particularly living on state super i wonder also is a trap there that mm. one one might presume that uh, if you're going to rent for the rest of your life and you're going to be as uh, as good as what you're implying there that we're going to put all our money in the bank and have a million bucks i think what happens also though nick is that a lot of people who've got some money in the bank, they spend it. Uh, they do. Now, that's <laughs> – yeah, true. Now, you utilise the comment bank. <clears throat> so, of course, a lot of people that put their money into the bank, it's in short-dated term mm. deposits or cash. Well, it's um, it's easily spent. It, yeah. uh, every time you log in, you know, on your app, it's uh, it's available there to see. Whereas if you look at something like KiwiSaver, 
Well, that is not as accessible until you are age 65. And if you've got it in an investment portfolio, well, that's like a, that's a structured bespoke approach for you as the individual. And it's more a long-term arrangement rather than just a piggy bank a drawdown facility that you can tap at a moment's notice and voila, you know, we're off spending. That's a great attitude that you got that we, uh, we put that money somewhere else, but we can't get it. How do we get that school of thought into people's head, though, so that when they get down the track and they're 65 years old or 70 years old uh, and they think, yeah, hey, I'm pretty good because I I talked to a guy like Nick when I was 20. That's what they need to do, isn't it? Yeah, correct. Yeah, people need to start early. Uh, KiwiSaver has been a great start at a mass consumption level Mm. for the population. You know, there are over 2.8 million working Kiwis or working and non-working Kiwis that are in KiwiSaver, which is a great start. Um, but it needs to be more than that. I mean, you know, 3% of salary matched by 3% um, from the employer isn't enough. No. Just to recap, because we're just about out of time, just remind our listeners, we're sitting down with mum and dad at the table tonight. We're talking about what are they going to do when they retire? What are some of the top questions we should be asking them? Um, you know, have you thought through um, your budget? Um, are you prepared to share that? I've written down a couple of notes. Yep. You know, so... Are they willing to seek some support, some independent guidance? Um, and the key to it, you know, asking things like, you know, what are your plans for retirement? Are you comfortable you're on the right path? Uh, what are your planned sources of income in retirement? Um, do you have any sources of debt? Uh, what type of insurance coverage do you have? Are you, if you are unable to live in this current location, where would you go? And, you know, have you considered a budget to maintain, you know, the household uh, as it is today? And, you know, um, is there any possibility of extending your duration of work in your current employment, even in a part-time basis? Simple questions that are not confrontational. It's someone who's coming from, from a good place where they care. They're just wanting to know that mum and dad or their auntie and uncle or family friend have thought this through. And it's just like dying, isn't it? We don't want to think about it, but we should be talking about it. <laughs> Good on you, Nick. Look, just remind our listeners, want to come and see you at the Stewart Group. Where are you and what's your phone number? Uh, we're at 204 Academy Road, Central Hastings, and you can give us a call on 06-878-8961. As always, our pleasure, Nick. Look after yourself. Talk to you same time, same place next time. This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a volunteer-based community access station. For more information, go to www.radiokidnappers.org.nz. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this program available through funding the Access Internet Radio Project.